Thank you, Brandon and Jordan and the whole Stern family for the example they've set for us in this. It's a great ministry to be involved with, so I'm so glad that our church is promoting this. When I became a student at Moody Bible Institute, my first practical Christian ministry assignment was to go to the Pacific Garden Mission once a week and to play the piano down there. I think I was the first person named Sunday who played that piano, which was donated by the evangelist Billy Sunday. So they liked me. And it was a real eye-opener for me to see how God, by his power, was at work transforming people's lives when they had hit rock bottom. And maybe you are aware of the ministry of Pacific Garden Mission through their program on Moody Radio. It's called Unshackled. It tells the stories of people whose lives have been set free through the amazing grace of God. Like we sang this morning, my chains are gone. I've been set free. And it's the, one of the longest-running radio drama programs in world history. It started in 1950, and it's continued unabated to this day. I think one of the reasons it's so popular is we need to be reminded again and again of God's unlimited power to transform the bleakest of situations. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12. It's a chapter that portrays the hostility the early church in Jerusalem was facing. But here's the main idea I want us to take away from this passage this morning. The hostility of earthly powers cannot hinder the triumph of God's power. We can be unshackled because God's power is unshackled. And I want to know if you really believe that. Do you believe that there is no earthly power that can hinder the triumph of God's power? Do you expect to see God's power at work in our lives? Maybe I should ask, where are you placing limits on the power of God? When are you tempted to doubt his power? How are you exhibiting limited faith in God's ability? Think about that as we read God's word, Acts chapter 12, together, and may your confidence in the power of God increase as he reveals himself to us in this passage, beginning at verse 1. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared. And a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around him, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. 
And he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God spread and multiplied. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you would summon your power and show us your might as you have done mighty, many times in the past and increase our confidence in you and in the power of your gospel. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your son, and for his glory. Amen. This chapter is here to show us that the hostility of earthly powers cannot hinder God's power. So how can we respond when the darkness is closing in? The first thing we can do is we can trust in the wisdom of God's purpose. If you zoom in on verses 1 through 4, it doesn't seem like God's purpose is succeeding. The king is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of the king Herod who tried to kill Jesus. The king Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And this king Herod, his grandson, is no less hostile to the followers of Jesus. He lays violent hands on some who belong to the church, we see in verse 1. And in verse 2, we see that his hostility is so intense, he executes James, the apostle. And we get a glimpse into the motive of his heart in verse 3. 
He craves the favor of people. He is motivated by self-exaltation and pride. So when he sees that the execution of James pleased the Jews, he proceeds to arrest Peter also. This was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, otherwise known as Passover, the same time that Jesus was crucified a decade or so earlier. He seizes Peter, he puts him in prison, heavily guarded. And the clear implication in verse 4 is that Herod intends to do to Peter exactly what he had done to James once Passover is over. So in verses 1 through 4, the church is facing a king who is enraged, an apostle who has been executed, and another apostle who is on death row. It is the bleakest of times. It seems like the kingdom of Christ is in jeopardy. It seems like the church is losing. If God's power is triumphing, why is one of Jesus' apostles dead now? But remember what Jesus himself had told James and John many years earlier when he and his brother asked for the best seats in the kingdom. Lord, we want to sit at your right hand and your left. And Jesus said, that's not for me to grant. But he he asked them a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, are you willing to suffer as I have suffered? And they said, yes, we are. And Jesus said, yes, you will. You will suffer for my name's sake. So James' execution is not a sign that Jesus' purpose has failed. It's not a sign that God's power is limited. James didn't die because Jesus was not able to rescue him. God's purpose can prevail through the death of one of his servants just as much as God's purpose can prevail through the deliverance from death of another one of his servants. The truth is, persecution and imprisonment and martyrdom have often caused the church of Jesus Christ to grow. As believers have watched the commitment of other believers unto death. And what it does is it it sharpens our vision about what really matters. It gets us focused on the things of eternity. It helps us be filled with a zeal to live for Christ and his gospel when we see the price that other believers pay to follow Jesus. And the early church understood this. Tertullian, one of the church fathers who died in 225 said this to his enemies, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. And a hundred years after him, Jerome in the fourth century said, the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. So when the nations rage and the kings are plotting in vain against Christ and his kingdom, their plotting is of no alarm to Jesus. Psalm 2 tells us that he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at the raging of the earthly powers that be. Jesus is king 
His purposes will prevail. That doesn't mean he takes it lightly when one of his servants like James dies. No, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But James is with Jesus in heaven now. And James is laughing with his King Jesus at the triumph of Christ's power over Herod's short-lived reign of terror. And we can do the same. When it seems like all the earthly powers are set against us, we can trust in the wisdom of God's purpose, God's plan, that there is no power on earth that can hinder the triumph of his power. That's what gave Helen Rosevere the courage to go back to Zaire as a medical missionary in the year 1965. She had been captured by communist rebels in that country. She had been brutalized and raped for several days by them. And she went back home to Northern Ireland to recover. And she trusted in the invincible power of God and the wisdom of his purposes. And she decided, I'm going back, back to the country where those terrible things happened to me. And she wrote in Christianity Today a few years later, I want people to be passionately in love with Jesus so that nothing else counts. The world thinks I'm foolish for going there. But if God sent me to Africa with my family, he's going to look after us. If I get AIDS, it's because he wants me to witness to others who've got it. And she continued there for many, many more years. Because when you believe in the unlimited power of God, you can trust that his purposes are higher and wiser and farther reaching than any hostile power on earth can destroy. And we need to believe that here today in our culture, in our time. We're not in danger of being executed by our government for following Jesus. Thank God for that. We're not in danger of being tortured by our government for worshiping Jesus. Not in 2022. But there is a battle. For us, it's an ideological battle. We are being confronted with pressure every day, especially during this month of June, to conform our thinking to an ideology that is anti-Christian. And it will not lead to human flourishing. And we want to love all people, and we want to be winsome and kind to all. We want to witness for Jesus in a way that is gentle and reflects his character. But we can do all of that. We can be winsome and loving and kind, and there's no guarantee that this world will still not be hostile to us. If we stand for the truth of Jesus Christ in our culture, sometimes we're not going to be viewed with tolerance. We're going to be viewed as bigots for what we believe. We have to be ready for that. We may not lose our lives, but some of us may lose our jobs, and some of us may lose our popularity and our reputations, even if we're the most winsome we can possibly be. And if we limit the power of God, we might be tempted 
to cave into the pressure of the world, to compromise the truth of God's word, to mute our witness for Jesus, to shrink back in fear. Or if we limit the power of God, we might be tempted to fight spiritual battles in a worldly way with worldly weapons. That's why we need to see the example of the early church here, how they responded when the hostile power of the culture of their day was breathing down their necks. How did they respond? Well, because they believed that the hostility of earthly powers cannot hinder the triumph of God's power, what they did is they found refuge in God's presence through prayer. And that's our second point this morning. We can find refuge in God's presence through prayer when we believe that there is no power on earth that can hinder his power. Verse 5 is key here. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. And that word there means strenuously, agonizingly they were praying. It's the same word that Luke uses of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the kind of prayer that was going up in the church for Peter in these days. When all we can do is pray, we look really weak in the eyes of the world. The King Herods think, oh, I've got them now. Look at them, weaklings, whimpering in prayer to their God. But prayer is where we uncover the true nature of our strength. The early church understood this. They would have believed with the Puritan John Owen these words, the duties that are required of us are not proportioned to the strength residing in us, but to the supply laid up for us in Christ. In other words, what we need to do to live faithfully for Christ and his kingdom does not depend on the strength we have or on the limitations of our strength. It depends entirely on the almighty power of Jesus Christ that is available to us. And we access that power when we turn to him in prayer. And when we call upon him, he is not distant. Heaven is filled with ambassadors, with emissaries, whose job it is to protect and defend and support heaven's citizens who are living down here on earth, us. And as the church prays, that's what Peter experiences in that prison. On the very night that Herod is about to bring him out for trial, we read in verse 6, that very night, what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. Sound asleep like a baby. It reminds me of Jesus in the boat in the storm. As the storm's raging, Jesus is sleeping. And the disciples are terrified and they, they wake him up and they say, Why are you sleeping, Master? Don't you care that we're perishing? Well, Peter has learned through the years that his master does care that he's perishing. And even though he's in danger, this night he's enabled to sleep in the middle of that prison, trusting in the power of King Jesus. Herod has gone to extreme lengths to ensure that Peter cannot escape from this prison. Maybe he's heard about another time back in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and the apostles somehow managed to escape from another prison. So instead of just chaining him to one soldier, which would have been customary, 
He's got one on each side. Peter is really chained down. And he's got guards in front of the door. And we're told there were four squads of four soldiers each assigned to him. That's 16 soldiers on one man. There's no way Peter's going to get out of here on his own. But the church is earnestly praying to God for him. And there's no power on earth that can hinder the triumph of Christ's unlimited power. So from having God sends an angel of the Lord and getting into that prison is no difficulty for God's angel. And just like on the first Passover night, when God delivered the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt, the angel of the Lord's coming now to rescue his servant, Peter. A bright light shines into that cell. He strikes Peter on the side. Not the most pleasant way to wake up. Get up quickly. And the chains fall off his wrists. He is unshackled. This is no time to hang around. So the angel says, put on some clothes, grab your sandals, let's get out of here. And it happens so fast. Peter hasn't had his morning coffee. He's groggy. He, he, he's taken out and he thinks he's in a dream or a vision. He can't even believe it's happening. They pass to the first and second guards with ease. And then they come to the iron gates leading into the city. And this is before they had the cameras that kind of can, can see you coming and open automatically. But these gates, they just open right up miraculously to let God's servant escape. They pass through and start walking along a street in the city, and immediately the angel leaves Peter, and that's when Peter realizes what's really been going on. He comes to his senses, and in verse 11, he says, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I've been set free. My chains are gone. Jesus, who reigns from Heaven over earth has intervened and sent his angel and rescued me. His grasp is stronger on my life than Herod's. His plans for me will prevail over all the plans of the Jewish people. Nothing can hinder him from saving, whether by many or by few. It's a powerful episode. Showing us once again in the book of Acts who's really in charge of what happens to the church here on earth. Jesus is our leader. Jesus is in charge, and his reign and his power are available to us. And we can experience his presence and his power when we go to him in prayer. Do you believe that? Are you acquainted with the source of our power? Do you realize that when we are praying, our Lord Jesus Christ is acting mightily on our behalf. Howard Hendricks told a story that illustrates this about a tragic situation that happened just before World War II in the town of Itasca, Texas. There was a devastating fire in a school that caused the death of 263 children. That city was so distraught that as soon as the war was over, they built a new school. And they put into that school the most state-of-the-art sprinkler system available at the time so that nothing like that would ever happen again. And to ensure the citizens of that town that the school was now safe, they would have the honor students 
give people tours of the school to show them this amazing sprinkler system. Well, seven years went by. It was during the time of the baby boom, and the city was growing, and the school needed an expansion. And as the construction crews went in to begin building the addition, they made an alarming discovery. The sprinkler system had never been connected. It was installed, but disconnected from the source of power. Seven years, they weren't as safe as they thought they were. We don't want to be like that as a church. We want to be well-connected to the source of our power. We want to be a church that prays earnestly together. We want to experience the active presence and power of our King Jesus working on our behalf. We were just talking about this Tuesday night in our elder meeting, about how we long to see the word of God flow powerfully through this church, reaching our neighbors, reaching to the nations. We long to see more people brought to faith in Jesus Christ in our community. That takes power from God. We long to see lives transformed and marriages restored and and things that only God can do. And so we need to be a praying church. We want to see our church grow in the number of disciples and the depth of discipleship. And, And so we're talking about how can we deepen our commitment to prayer as a church. And one decision we made on Tuesday is that we're going to devote the month of August to a month of prayer, right when our children are going back to school. And one of the things we're going to do for the five Wednesday nights of the month of August is we're going to gather here in this sanctuary from 6.30 to 8 p.m., and we're going to devote ourselves to earnest prayer. I want to encourage you to put that on your calendar now, to plan on participating in that, to, to, to be connected to the source of our power that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that brings me to the question, What are we expecting God to do when we pray? Because if we believe that nothing can hinder the triumph of God's power, then, thirdly, we can wait expectantly for Jesus to act powerfully in answer to our prayers. I'm so glad Luke includes all the details of this story that he does in Acts chapter 12. It's so good to read How the Apostle Peter thought, I must be seeing a vision because this can't be real. Because that's probably how I'd respond if an angel woke me up in the middle of the night. This this is too good to be true. And I love what happens next. Verse 12. Peter goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where the people, many people, many are gathered together praying for him. He starts knocking on the door. And they're afraid. They're probably thinking, you know, could this be Herod's secret service coming to carry us off as well in his violent rage? So in their fear, they they pick a young girl named Rhoda and say, you go to the gate. You answer the door. Rhoda goes to the gate. She hears Peter's voice. She is so amazed with joy that she leaves him standing there outside the gate, runs back into the house, and tells the church, Peter's outside. And I love the way 
they respond. Hilariously human. You're out of your mind. No way that could be. We're praying for him right now that he get out of prison, so it couldn't possibly be him. How could it be that the thing we're praying for could happen in the very moment that we're praying? Did anything ever so crazy happen? You know, sometimes I think when we're praying for things, we no more expect God to answer our prayers than we expect a UFO to show up in our backyard. We're praying, but we're not expecting. And aren't you glad that God's answers to our prayers are not limited by the scope of our expectation? Aren't you glad that he constantly does above and beyond what we could even ask or imagine? And that every answer to prayer we receive is just dripping with grace and with mercy. He's not limited by our prayers. But it does raise the question, are our prayers dripping with expectancy? So someone keeps knocking at the gate. Rhoda keeps insisting it's Peter. They say it must be his angel, couldn't be. And finally they open the door and when they see him, their incredulity turns into exuberant delight. And they are celebrating so loudly, Peter has to quiet them down so that the commotion doesn't draw attention. And look at what verse 17 says he told them. I love this. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. In other words, He's putting the focus on the activity of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in answer to the prayers of his people. He wants the church to be encouraged that they have a Savior who is not dead, who is not distant, who is not disengaged from the plight of his people. He is a living, active, near-present Savior who has unlimited power, far above all earthly powers, and that's who we worship. That's who we love. That's who is with us and for us. That's who we follow in this world. And we can expect great things from him as we follow him. So with these words, Peter steps off the scene, and the focus in the book of Acts is now going to shift from Peter to Paul and from the church in Jerusalem to the church as it spreads to the farthest ends of the earth. And we're going to see that God answers the church's prayers far above all that they could ask or imagine as Christ's gospel goes to all the nations. But it's an encouragement to us when we're going through dark times, when the road ahead seems bleak, when it feels like hope is gone, to not overreact, to not fall into despair, but to look up and see the Lord who is the way maker, miracle worker, light in the darkness, God that we've been singing of today. And to realize he's seated on his throne of grace and he is ready to pour out grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. He hasn't left us to ourselves. He hasn't taken his hand off the wheel. He's ruling and he's available and he's present. So let's expect great things from God and attempt great things for God because there's no power on earth that can hinder the triumph of his power. We sang it this morning. We won't fear the battle. 
We won't fear the night. We will walk the valley with you by our side. There's only one thing in this chapter that I see that's worth fearing. Only one thing that should cause us alarm. And it's the pride that can rise up in our hearts as we exalt our own puny power above the unlimited power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the chapter ends with this illustration from the, from the life of Herod telling us we must humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and give him the glory that is due him. When we recognize that his power is far above all earthly powers and far above our own power, we must humble ourselves under his mighty hand and give him the, the glory that is due his name. Herod did not do that. The next morning when he realized Peter's gone, he's furious. He goes to all the soldiers, asks them what had become of Peter. They don't know. They're dismayed. They end up executed by Herod for their failure to protect his prisoner. And then Herod goes down from Judea to Caesarea and spends some time there. And he's very angry with the nations of Tyre and Sidon. And they're very dependent on him for their food supply because Judea is the breadbasket of that area. And so they come to the king to appease him, to get favor with him. And this is what Herod loves. He, he loves to curry favor with men. He loves to be needed and adored and worshipped. And so the day comes when he goes out to speak to the people of Tyre and Sidon. He's dressed in his royal robes. The historian Josephus records this in his annals and says that on that day, Herod's robes were interwoven with silver. And as the sun rose, he shone like a mighty angel. And as he spoke to the people, his speech was so impressive, they started yelling out, he has the voice of a god, not of a man. And as they're saying these things, Herod's heart is just filling with pride. Instead of stopping them and telling them, to worship God and not him. Herod loves their praise. And look at verse 23. At once, an angel of the Lord, I wonder if it's the same angel that came and got Peter out of the prison. He's got a new assignment now. An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. And I'll leave that to your imagination. And then the climax of the whole chapter is in verse 24. While the worms were spreading through Herod's body, the word of God keeps spreading through Herod's kingdom. And verse 24 says, but the word of God flourished and multiplied. So at the beginning of a cha the chapter, an apostle is dead, another is in prison, and King Herod seems to have unlimited power and authority. But at the end of the chapter, Herod is dead. The apostle Peter is set free. And the word of God is unshackled and flowing powerfully through Herod's kingdom. God buries his messengers, but not his message. And God is going to ensure that this gospel 
will go forth to all the nations of the world. And God's still doing that today. And he's still doing that through us. And we can be sure that as long as God has a purpose for us to bring his word through our lives, he will keep us alive amid all the hostility and all the threats and all the trouble that life brings us. Our lives are safe and secure until our work on earth for God and his gospel is complete. The only thing to fear is pride of robbing God the glory that is due his name, of remembering constantly that it's from him and through him and to him that all the glory belongs. That's where we have to have our hearts focus on. So let's bow before the Lord now and let's express to him our humble dependence on him in prayer. Lord Jesus, you've reminded us today why we're here. We're here because of the amazing grace that has rescued us, and we're here to be messengers of that grace to others. So Lord, help us not to live to make a name for ourselves or to exalt our own power or to depend on our own resources. All that we are and all that we have comes from you, and all the glory belongs to you. We exist to bring you praise. Thank you that you will protect us, sustain us, enliven us, and empower us to be your witnesses in this world. And thank you that nothing can hinder your power to save. We pray that your gospel of salvation would flow powerfully through this church, to this community, and to all the nations of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.